you do that, you can turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, it's a hard book to find, so I'm going to give you a few moments to get there. Habakkuk, it's in the back of the Old Testament in my Bible. It's page 876. Uh, if you're finding it on your smartphone, you may get there a little faster than the rest of us flipping through our Bible, because it can be a little difficult to find. Habakkuk, uh, listen, a lot has changed in the last three years since we began planting Mosaic Church. Maybe you have jumped into life at Mosaic sometime in these last three years, or the last year, or in the last six months, or in the last six weeks. And there has been quite a bit that has changed over these last three years, but one thing has not changed, and that is our vision. Why we're here, why we planted Mosaic Church has not changed at all. And it is summarized in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When we at Mosaic talk about our vision, why are we here? We say we're here because we want to see every inch of Richardson covered with the gospel and its fruits. What does this mean? It means that we long for a day when it is the ordinary experience of every person in Richardson to have an encounter with the presence of Christ. That's what we want. That's why we're here. That's why we planted this church. It wasn't so that we would have something that was more convenient or even something that was smaller or something that adjusted to our preferences. We planted Mosaic Church because we want every square inch of Richardson to be impacted with the good news of the gospel because we believe it's the best news of all. And we want others to hear and see and believe and be transformed by the good news of the gospel. Now, how will this happen? How will it happen that we see every inch of Richardson covered with the good news of the gospel? Well, I'll tell you, it will require us to be a different kind of people. It will require us to be a countercultural people. Like we said last week in the resolution sermon for this year, it will require us to be a people who rejoice in and release the unbreakable love of God in Christ Jesus. A people who are convinced that the best news of all is that we are fully known and fully loved in Jesus Christ and who delight in rejoicing in that and want to give it away freely to all those who are around us. That's what it requires to us, for us to be a people who have surrendered our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he has come so that the world may be remade and restored and that people can be transformed as they look and see Jesus and I want to look at the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet. We know very little about the prophet Habakkuk. We probably know less about Habakkuk than we know about any other prophet in the Old Testament. But we do know one thing. Habakkuk is upset. Habakkuk is frustrated, and he comes to the Lord with his frustrations. And so I'm going to read Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. And just like every week after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And that's an invitation for you to respond with thanks be to God. The reason we do that is because God hasn't left his people in silence. He has spoken. So let me read Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 18, and then we'll jump into exploring it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So how did Habakkuk get here? Because what Habakkuk is ending, his book, his prophecy saying is, everything is going to go wrong, 
and I'm still going to trust the Lord. But preceding all of that, preceding those last few verses, Habakkuk has been in an argument with God. And it's okay because sometimes we have to argue with God. If you haven't been there to a place where you've been arguing with God, trust me, give it a little bit more time, and you will find yourself in the presence of God arguing with him. And this is where Habakkuk finds himself. He's arguing with God. He takes issue with God. And let's look at it at the beginning of chapter 1. This is the setting. Habakkuk's voice is kind of yelling out at God in the midst of cultural upheaval. That's what's going on in Habakkuk. So you look in verse 2 through 4, and maybe even in your Bible above those verses, it probably says Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk has a complaint to God. He says, how, how long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is mad at God. Do you know why Habakkuk is mad at God? Because he is situated among God's people. In Judah, and he is seeing among them a people who should know the goodness, the greatness, and the law of God. They should know how to walk in the world, and you know what he's seeing? Wickedness. He's seeing injustice. He is seeing what God's law has said, perverted and twisted in order to rationalize the way that God's people want to live apart from him. And Habakkuk is angry. He's a prophet and he's coming before God saying, why do you just look at this and do nothing? Habakkuk is angry because of the brokenness of the world around him, because of the brokenness of God's people. And he believes that God has gone absent. He believes that God has abandoned his duty, his responsibility, and his faithfulness to change his people and to change the world. Habakkuk says in verses 12 through 17, he goes on, he keeps complaining. He says, listen, it looks like you're not watching. It looks like you're not paying attention. It looks like you're not going to do anything. But the Lord responds to Habakkuk's complaint. Look in verse 5 through 11. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to kind of skip around. The Lord tells Habakkuk, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who will march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Look, what God tells Habakkuk is essentially this. I know you're upset that it appears as if the people of God have abandoned justice, have abandoned honor, have abandoned dignity, have abandoned my law. But it's not only that I have not abandoned them, it's that I am currently working a plan that you wouldn't even understand if I told you. And this rings true because Habakkuk hears what God is going to do. God is saying, I'm going to judge my people and I'm going to judge it with the Chaldeans. These are the Babylonians, okay? And you know what Habakkuk says? I don't like that plan. That's, that's immediately Habakkuk's response. Okay, scratch what I said. I, the Babylonians are even worse than us. That's what Habakkuk says. How could the Babylonians judge us? How could those outside of us judge us? And it raises this question that we have to sort at the beginning to make sense of this. Habakkuk doesn't like what God is going to do. What Habakkuk wanted was he wanted God to accomplish his plans in the way that Habakkuk preferred. But oftentimes God is not intending to accomplish his plans through our preferences. He's, a, he's intending to adjust our preferences to his plans. And this is exactly what he tells Habakkuk. He says, I'm going to judge the people of God. Why is God going to judge them? 
to refine them, to change them. Why would he refine them? Because just like in Habakkuk's time, just like in our time, it is incredibly easy for the church to grow content with looking like the world. It is incredibly easy for the church to grow content with looking like the world. This is what Habakkuk is seeing. Habakkuk is seeing the people of God just adjust and accommodate and to begin to mirror the world around them. They were supposed to be a different kind of people. They were supposed to be God's beloved people who were living holy lives. And yet the people of God were rejecting that. And they were saying, you know what, we would much rather just kind of be what everyone else is. And God says, I'm not going to allow you to continue to do that. And I'm going to judge my people through the judgment of the Babylonians. And I believe that just like in Habakkuk's day, in our day as well, God has been in the business of judging the church, of refining the church. And I believe it will continue. Let me read you something from another prophet. Not a biblical prophet, but a moral prophet whose mind was inflamed with a biblical story. Listen to this and see if it rings true to you, okay? He says this, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores and the worldview of society. Wherever the early Christians entered the town's power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace. But they went on with conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring. It will forfeit the loyalty of millions. And it will be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. This is from a letter sent in August of 1963 from a Birmingham jail cell by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., appealing, appealing, begging, exhorting, encouraging in a moment of crisis, in an hour of need to say, will the church be awakened to follow Jesus? Whatever may come and whatever the cost may be. You see, Dr. King knew something that even Habakkuk in this moment was forgetting, that the church and the people of God thrive when it is pushed to the margins because in the margins we become very aware how absolutely dependent we are on divine power for anything good to happen. And this means that in a community, a community like the one that we live in, where many of us don't exist on the margins, we have to be extremely mindful that external comfort doesn't lead to spiritual complacency. Because this is what had happened among the people of God. This is why God is judging them. They had begun to conform to the world around them as opposed to being transformed by the call of God on their life. 
Habakkuk continues this argument with God. And God begins to speak to him very directly. Look in chapter 2, verse 2. Because Habakkuk has brought his complaint to God. He said, your people are not walking in your ways. Do something about it. God says, I'm going to do something about it. And Habakkuk says, "Mm, maybe not. Maybe don't do anything about it. Let us stay the way that we are. We'll figure this out on our own. But God continues. And what does he say in chapter 2? He says, write this down. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. And then he begins to start commending and exhorting the people of God, challenging them to be different. He says this, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects his own peoples. He goes on in verses 6 through 7. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. In verse 8, he commends a different way. He says, you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. In verse 12, he exhorts them against violence. In verse 18 of chapter 2, he exhorts them against idolatry. See, what God is telling is this. He's saying Israel is being conformed to the world around them. They're indulging in gluttony and greed and consumption and theft and violence and idolatry. And God is saying this is not the way the world will be made New again. This is not how my people are called to live. And in the midst of all of this comes our verse. The verse that anchors our vision statement. In verse 14 of chapter 2. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, God is concerned about his glory. God is concerned about proper worship. And he's inviting his people in to be a people who are uniquely marked by worshiping him. And that these people are compelled to do this because they believe the glory of the Lord is the best thing. Do you know what the glory of the Lord is? I think a lot of times we talk about glory. We don't really know what it means. We talk about the glory of the Lord and it sounds really Christian. It sounds like a really beautiful Christian idea. But we maybe feel a little uncertain about what glory actually means. Do you know, the best way to understand this word in the Hebrew is this idea of holiness displayed through love and peace and order and justice and righteousness. That's God's glory. Imagine if you could bundle up everything good about God and his plans. That's God's glory. Imagine if the world was just as it should be. That is God's glory displayed. It is his character. It is his faithfulness. It is his righteousness. And it is what he is inviting the church to be fixed on is the glory of the Lord. And he is concerned because the world is broken and his people are mirroring that brokenness. The people who are meant to be a showcase for his glory are looking just like those who reject that glory. And so God is exhorting them. He is saying, listen, beware, be careful, be mindful that you don't abandon this way because this is the way that leads to this promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Here's the reality. 20 years ago, most people I discussed Christ with had intellectual problems with becoming a Christian. The conversations are almost completely different these days. Do you know, I rarely encounter somebody who has a scientific or an intellectual problem with Christianity. 
Do you know who I regularly encounter? People who have a moral problem with Christianity. And isn't that strange? Isn't it strange that a people who are supposed to be marked by holiness and righteousness and peace and justice, that when the world looks at the church, their chief complaint is, none of that seems to be true. See, Habakkuk is concerned and the Lord is speaking to his people saying, if you abandon your witness to me, the world will think there is nothing different about me. I'll be just like all the other false gods, the idols that Habakkuk says are made with hands. You see, the gods of this world are tempting, but the Lord is different. The gods of this world promise that if you give them your life, they will give you the world. But God promises that if you give him your life, he will never abandon you and the world will never own you. That's a very different promise. The gods of this world are trying to sell you at all times, saying, if you give me your life, I will give you the world. They never deliver on that promise. They never can. They never have and they never will. But the God of the Bible is saying, if you give me your life, the world will never own you and I will never abandon you. I'm telling you, I've never met somebody who's had an encounter with the glorious grace of God who at the end of their life says, I wish I would have played it differently. Never once. Because we see over and over again the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of the world around us. God tells Habakkuk, a day is coming when the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. What does that mean? It means a world remade. It means a world restored. It means a people united in worship. It means the curses of sin undone, death, shame, and darkness pulled out of the world for good forever. This is only good news if God's glory is what you want to see. This promise that the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, it's only good news if that's what you want to see. If you want to build a kingdom of your glory, this is bad news. Because what this says is that that kingdom is definitely going to fall. Because the earth is not going to be filled at the end. No matter how we work, no matter how much we save, no matter how much we invest, no matter how much we spend, no matter how much we do and accomplish, how many tasks we get achieved, how many days our inbox is at zero, it does not matter. Whatever key metric for your life is, let me tell you, if you hit that every day for the rest of your life, your kingdom will not be remembered. But there is a kingdom that's forever. And it's better than the one that we're settling for. Every single time. Whatever kingdom that we're tempted to settle for, this kingdom, it's better than that. And it's not just better on a list. It's almost in a different galaxy of superiority. Because it's a kingdom marked by grace and not marked by shame. It's a kingdom marked by peace and not one marked by fear. It's a kingdom marked by unity and not a kingdom marked by division. This kingdom is better. It's a better kingdom. And God is inviting his people into that. He's inviting us into that. And what we have to see as a people, and my heartbeat for us this year, is that the revival that we long to see in our community must begin with revival, repentance, and renewal in our church. We must ask ourselves, are we making disciples in our community or is our community making disciples of us? Are we making disciples in our community, inviting them into the way of Jesus, saying, listen, we know it's weird. We know it doesn't feel like Richardson. We know it kind of disrupts and unsettles some things, but this way is marked by grace, and Jesus is in front of us, and we're walking in this way no matter what happens. 
Are we making disciples in our community or are we becoming disciples of our community? Are we, as Dr. King said of the early church, God intoxicated? You know, I've asked myself, how do you measure that? How do you measure that? Because it seems like, wow, that's a good call. I want to be like that. I want to follow in that way. What would that look like? You know, I was actually praying through our values, our core values and our aspirational values, and it occurred to me they're a great way of kind of diagnosing where are we at on this. You know, we say that we're hyper-local, that we're in Richardson for Richardson. We're in Richardson on purpose. We want to seek the good of this city. So we have to ask ourselves, are we merely consuming in this city or are we investing in it? We say we're urgently evangelistic. We want people to know Jesus. Are we inviting people to follow Jesus with us? We say we want to be theologically robust, that we want to know who God is and what he has done. Are we growing in that? Are we growing in our knowledge of who God is? We want to be a culture of invitation. Are we a people marked by grace and generosity and hospitality in a world where none of those gifts are offered anywhere else? We want to be a people who are multicultural. Are we pursuing relationships with everybody in our neighborhood or just the people that spend, save, live, act, and talk like us? We say we want to be radically generous. Are we measuring success in our lives, in our church, by how much we, but we keep or by how much we send? We want to be charismatically expressive. Are we praying, God, ignite me with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Give me intimacy with Jesus Christ so that I may have confidence to walk in the power of the Spirit. We want to be a part of a gospel movement. Are we willing to lay down our lives for the movement of the gospel in our community? Habakkuk is shocked by what God has said. And he responds in chapter 3. How does he respond? Because essentially God has told him, the world is broken and so are my people. I'm going to use the world to judge my people so that my people return to me and they can begin to live in my way in the life of the world. And Habakkuk is overwhelmed. But he responds in faith. He responds in faith. Look at chapter 3 and verse 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. He says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk says, I fear you, Lord. I love you. I worship you. I fear you. I see your faithfulness. Give me trust. Give me belief. In verse 6, he goes on. It says, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Habakkuk remembers God's power. He remembers this is the creator of the universe, the one that holds it all together. In verse 16, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. Rottenness enters my bones, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk says, I don't really get it all. I don't get your plans. I don't get your purposes, but I will wait for you. And then in verses 17 through 18, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take my joy in the Lord. I will find my strength in the Lord. You see, Habakkuk has come to realize something that we have to realize. Our only hope to see the gospel cover every inch of Richardson is not our creative strategy. It's not our killer plans. It's not a foolproof methodology. It's not some church tactical thing that we're going to do. It's not, a, it's not a permanent building in this community. It's not more people. It's not less people. It's not more money. It's not less money. The only thing that can accomplish what we believe God has laid on our hearts in this community is the very power of God and the people willing to trust him with their whole life. That's it. There isn't anything. If you think that we have a game-winning strategy 
for accomplishing this vision, you don't understand who we are. We don't have it. We don't have it. There's not a book that's been written. There's not a playbook that I could give you. What we are saying is that we are people who believe that if God doesn't do the greatest work, it won't get done. And we're willing to leverage all of our trust, all of our faith, all of our belief, all of our hope in that. In that. Because ultimately, his world is his world and his church is his church. It's not ours. That this church doesn't belong to me or to you. This church belongs to the Lord. My life is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. Your life is not your own. It belongs to the Lord. So here's the big question for us as we go into this year. What is the compelling vision of your life? Is it a kingdom of your own building? Is it the glory of your own name? Is it the safety and the security of your own self? God is inviting us into something different. He's inviting us into something different, asking what kind of people do we want to be? I'll tell you, the church, and I'm not just talking about us, I'm talking about the church and the global West is at a reckoning moment. I don't know if you feel it, but it's happening. Here's the question. Will we follow in the way of Jesus or will we do something else? That's it. That's the big question. And for the people of Mosaic, we're saying, listen, the vision that the Lord's put on our life is not the glory of our name. It's not brand identity in Richardson. It's not apples and oranges with other churches that we want to compete and buy for marketplace. We don't care about any of that. We have one singular aim, that every inch of Richardson would experience the good news of the gospel. That every man, woman, and child could not live a day in this community without an encounter with the presence of Christ in word or deed. If you want to know what drives us, that's what it is. If you're at Mosaic, you're invited into that. It's a costly way, and it will be paved with sacrifices for as long as we walk it, but we'll be with Jesus the whole time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy, and we confess you build your church. It's yours to have. The vision has not changed and the vision will not change because the vision is what the Christian life is about, which is the glory of the Lord. Compel us, God, deep in our bones and our hearts. Put a zeal, a holy zeal, a burden, a passion, an urgency. God, we thank you for the grace of the gospel, knowing that the road is costly, but it is paved with grace. Knowing that for any steps backwards we take, It is the faithfulness of God that upholds us. And knowing that the way forward is only accomplished by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit that works within us all the energy that you have given for the sake of your name and for the sake of the kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.